We read from Holy Scripture this morning, the first epistle of John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1. We'll read the entire chapter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life, for the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. This, then, is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We consider this morning, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle tells us the reason for the epistle that he is in this epistle declaring the Word, that is, the person of Jesus Christ, who is God and has been from the beginning the Word, and that Word of which he and the apostles are witnesses because they heard this Word with their own ears. They saw him with their own eyes, and they handled him with their own hands. And they manifest that word, they reveal and are witnesses to that word of life because he reveals the eternal life of God. And he says there are two reasons for declaring this message. The first is so that you may have fellowship with us, that is, fellowship with all the saints and with God the Father and His Son through the Spirit. That's the first reason, that you may have fellowship with us and with God the Father and the Son through the Spirit. The second is that your joy may be full, that is, complete, realized, manifested in all its great glory and fullness. This is a message, therefore, that brings benefits and blessings to us and to the people of God brings the message that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. But there are some threats to the enjoyment of those blessings, 
to the experience of the fullness of that joy. And he addresses those two things. The first is that we deceive ourselves by saying we have no sin. We say to ourselves, well, I have no sin. Then we make God a liar, he says, and we have no fellowship because the word of truth is not in us. The second is that exactly because we say we have no sin, we also do not confess, therefore, sin. The result being that that sin is not forgiven. It is not cleansed. And again, the result is no fellowship with God because God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. So a fitting word for us this morning as we gather around the Lord's table in fellowship to experience the perfect joy of fellowship with one another and with our Lord Jesus Christ and His Father through the Son and Holy Spirit. Because we enjoy the spirit of faith alone, we must be warned of those same threats that we in unbelief and hard-heartedness say, while we have no sin, so we do not confess our sin. Over against that comes the word of the text, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Consider with me this morning that truth under the theme, the certainty of confessed sins, the, the certain forgiveness of confessed sins. In the first place, we notice the truth of that. Secondly, the reason for that. And finally, the blessedness of that. The first thing that we must see and understand this morning is that what is stated in our text is absolute truth. It is truth in its most absolute form. It is truth without any lie or doubt in it whatsoever. So much truth that one may consider and should consider it a promise of God as certain and as real as we considered earlier last week. Now this truth comes in a certain form, a grammatical form. It comes in the form of what we call a conditional sentence. And we take note of that, even though I would prefer not to, we take note of that even this morning as we gather around the Lord's table because there are two errors that are common among us with regard to such a form of truth. The first is that we look at the form, namely the grammatical conditional form, and we say to ourselves that therefore it sets forth a real condition. That is, there is a relationship between what comes before and after and that relationship is one of a real condition, a condition that expresses uncertainty or only mere possibilities, a condition that also expresses causality between what becomes before and what comes after. So that in this case the idea is there is uncertainty and only possibility 
that you will confess your sins. And now if you do, your confessing your sins is the cause or reason that God forgives them. Now that understanding of this form is incorrect. It is gravely in error because there are no conditions in salvation and in the covenant and in the truth of God. His truth is truth. But that leads us to the second error, which is exactly because that is the case, we become suspicious of the form itself. We become suspicious of the Scriptures themselves. We say within ourselves, well, then you cannot trust what the Bible has to say, and soon we are ignoring the plain truth of Scripture or changing its meaning. So against those two errors, we simply look at this text and we assert that it's teaching truth, absolute truth. In fact, it's hard to see here in our English, but the particular grammatical form that it comes in is a particular conditional form, and it's one that expresses certainty or reality. It may even be read that way. If we confess our sins, and indeed you will confess your sins, and for those who do confess their sins, this is what will happen. It's a statement of fact, and it shouldn't surprise us because we speak this way all the time. And when we speak this way, even using conditional form, we're not giving conditions. If the sun is shining, then it will be hot. If it's raining, you will need an umbrella if you go outside. If you have money, then you are rich. And those, you see, are much different statements than saying, if you mow the lawn, I'll give you 20 bucks. Or if I hit you, you will have a black eye. Notice in those examples that they're not all conditions. They don't express uncertainty or probability. And notice especially that in all of them, exactly because they're all different, you cannot infer the reason, intent, or cause that one thing follows another. It simply does. So also our text. This text is stating simply a universal truth. God forgives our sins, and He cleanses us from all unrighteousness when we confess them to Him. That is truth. That is nothing but the truth. That is the whole truth, and that is the complete truth. So why is it given in this form? Ah, for a good reason. The Holy Spirit is no conditional theologian, yet He gives it in this form for good reason. And here it is to emphasize two particular and related truths about forgiveness and the cleansing of God as they are related to confession. First of all, it's stating as clearly as it can be said that God does not forgive all sins, nor does He cleanse all unrighteousness. That's a universal truth. God does not forgive all sins. He does not forgive all unrighteousness. He does not forgive the sins of the reprobate ungodly, nor does He cleanse them from their unrighteousness. Also, 
And even more sharply, he does not forgive all the sins or cleanse the unrighteousness of someone who says they have no sins. That's the context. This is over against what is said above and before, which is that there are those who say they have no sins. Those sins are not forgiven. Those are the sins of someone who deceives themselves and the truth is not in them. And lest we forget the point, that's what follows the text also. The same kind of things. If we say that we have not sinned, then those sins of such a one are not forgiven because we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So that's the first thing that's being taught here. Number one, God does not forgive all sins. And He does not cleanse all unrighteousness, but only the sins and the unrighteousness that is confessed. So that's the second thing. The second thing that is taught here is that confession of sin is the necessary way in which God forgives us and cleanses us from unrighteousness. There is an inseparable connection between the two, so much so that it may be stated as a universal truth. Now, this doesn't say anything about the reason why. It doesn't say anything, for example, implying that some activity that you have done, say confession now here, then earns or warrants God's forgiveness. It's simply stating, this is the way. This is the only way. This is the necessary way that God forgives sins and cleanses one from unrighteousness in the way of the confession of sin. Now there are in this sentence two activities that are mentioned, two very important and related activities. The first is that we confess our sins, that we must confess our sins. Now, what does that mean? Well, I could simply say this, that this is the activity we were all supposed to engage in this past week. We call it self-examination. And in fact, we could look at our form and lay out all the principles of confession right there. For example, it simply means to confess one's sins as worthy of damnation to acknowledge one's sins and si as sins and that they are worth the damnation of God. We have in the form that we consider our own sins, that I consider my sins and the curse due to me for them to the end that I may abhor and humble myself before God. Or if you look up question and answer 89 of the Heidelberg Catechism, it means that I have a sincere sorrow of heart that I have provoked God by my sins. That's the confession of sins. It is not simply to enumerate them, to list them, to identify them, but it is to recognize them as sinful, that is, offensive against God. Certainly we must enumerate our sins. To confess our sins is simply the same as saying, well, I'm a sinner. Lord, forgive my sins. But Lord, forgive these sins, those sins. I recognize that this particular behavior is sin. And then also that I abhor it, that I hate my sin as offensive against a holy and righteous God. I even hate my inability to do what I'm supposed to do. And don't forget that sin now that we confess isn't 
simply uh, that we uh, did what we shouldn't have done, but that we don't do what we should have done. All those are sins. We even speak about that in the form that we feel many weaknesses and infirmity in myself, that I have not perfect faith, so I do not give myself to serve God with a zeal that I am bound. Even the form is going to talk about the confession of sins. Now obviously the confession of sins includes confessing them before God. Confessing them before God in my heart and confess them believing that God will forgive them for Christ's sake. It doesn't mean that God forgives only the sins that come to my consciousness and that I enumerate. That's not what the text is saying. God forgives the sins of little children and little babies who don't understand their sin is sin. God certainly is capable and able to forgive the, the sins of a man who has been killed suddenly by an accident and sinned that morning and not had time to confess them before God. But it's talking about doing this rather than denying them, hiding them, and excusing them. It's one thing to fail to confess one's sins because they are weak. Because one does not see them significantly as he ought. It's another thing to hide them, to deny them, to excuse them to ignore them, then the warning applies. Those sins are not forgiven. And the reason is you're calling God a liar when He testifies. This sin is sin. Whether that testimony come in the heart through the conscious or through another individual, you say, no, I don't think so. It may be this and it may be that. I'll give this excuse and that excuse. Then one must know those sins are not forgiven. And you may expect that you will not be cleansed from that unrighteousness either. Why? Because you make God a liar. You're deceiving yourself. In the words of Jesus, you do not see that you're sick. Don't forget that included in this is believing God will forgive them. You come to God because you believe actually the truth of the statement itself. That you come and confess them to God exactly because you believe God will forgive them. That too is in the form. That we believe this faithful promise of God that all my sins are forgiven me only for the sake of the passion and death of Jesus Christ. That's the very purpose of the text. So that we don't deceive ourselves. We don't hide and excuse our sins but come to Christ exactly because we believe He forgives our sins. And we might add here also confession includes a sincere and increasing resolve to hate and flee from those sins with a corresponding desire to obey God. That too is in the form for self-examination. That we purpose henceforth to show true thankfulness to God in my whole life and walk uprightly before Him while laying aside all such sin. That's the first part. If we confess our sin then then God is faithful and just to do two things. To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Number one, He, can, he forgives those sins that we confess. And confess as we have summarized just now. What does that mean? 
Well, it doesn't mean that God atones for them, that God pays for them. It really doesn't even include, as it were, the what we call objective forgiveness of us at the cross. Why? Because that's already happened. That's already been done long before we confess our sins. So it's not talking about that. What it means is that God tells us we are forgiven. So we know it and believe it in our own soul. God tells us you are forgiven. It's really no different than how we practice this among ourselves. We sin against our brother. We go to our brother and we apologize and say, Brother, I have sinned against you. And he says, And I forgive you. I forgive you. And this forgiveness includes also then the great experience of peace and joy in one soul that is a result that follows. The idea is that God brings this to our mind. Hopefully you experienced that even this morning. He brings to your mind, even as you're hearing now in your ears, why we are preaching on this text. If you confess your sins, then you must know, you must believe that God forgives those sins. That the penalty for them has been paid that the punishment that's owed by them has been carried out, that those sins have been atoned, paid for, they're forgotten, they're done. There's nothing to do, nothing to pay with regard to those sins. Then there is a second thing, which is that God cleanses us from all unrighteousness. There are, I believe, two parts to this. That this implies, first of all, the imputation of righteousness to us from someone else. That's not inherent in the word cleanse. Cleanse means to actually scrub and wash away. But there is another aspect of that, which is that God declares we are righteous. He says of us, you are righteous. We should always remember that. That's the amazing thing about the forgiveness of God. It's not simply that God says to us, now all your sins, the things that you did that you shouldn't have done, and the things that you didn't do but you should have done, there's no more debt for those. You have incurred the debt of hell. You owe me your life. You should be dead forever, cast away but that's all been paid. You are forgiven. But there's always the other side, which is, and you know what? Everything that I have required, every jot and tittle of the law, perfect obedience, perfect worship of me, perfect faith, perfect love and care of your neighbor, I've provided that too. It's yours. You come short in nothing. I see you as those who have perfectly fulfilled everything that I've required. But there's more with regard to that. God actually cleanses us of unrighteousness. 
That's an amazing thing. And it's hard to say what's even more amazing. But it follows from the forgiveness of sins. God doesn't simply say that you are righteous, but He makes you that. He delivers us from the actual power of sin. He frees us from the actual bondage of sin so that we are enabled to live a new and godly life. That too, we will find in the form. Now what's the reason? What explains this Word of God? Why is it that it's so certain, so sure? Why is it such an absolute statement of fact? And I hope it's obvious that the reason the ground cannot be that we confessed our sins. That even though this is the necessary way, and without confession there is no forgiveness, that the reason that there's forgiveness, the reason that we are cleansed from unrighteousness is not because we confessed our sins. Now it's easy to make that mistake. It's easy to read it that way because we can infer that from what it says about those who do not confess their sins. We reason this way. Well, if God doesn't forgive the sins of those who will not confess their sins, and He does that because they make God a liar, and because they deceive themselves, because there is no truth but only lies in them, then it must follow that the reason that God forgives my sins and the reason God cleanses me from unrighteousness is because I'm better than them. Because I confessed my sins. I brought them to God. That would be wrong. That would be a grave mistake. Confession of our sins is the necessary way by which we receive forgiveness and cleansing. Make no mistake, one logically follows the other. And the Lord Himself makes clear the reason why one follows the other. And it's as simple, so simple that a child can understand it, and that is... Because only sick people go to see doctors. If someone comes to you and says, Brother, you have a sickness, you have a disease, and you say, No, I'm fine, I'm healthy, there's no sickness or disease here, you got to go to the doctor? Answer, no, of course not. Only sick people go to doctors. And only sinners who confess their sins go to Christ. Sinners who don't confess their sins don't go to Christ. They don't need God. They don't need forgiveness. Besides, it ought to be clear that the cleansing of unrighteousness and the forgiveness of sins that is promised here in this text is given out of the free favor and grace of God. That's the form. They are imputed and freely given. I am forgiven only for the sake and passion of the death of Jesus Christ. That's the Scriptures. We have redemption through His blood and forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Notice, by the way, the distinction between those two things in that text. That's Ephesians 1, verse 7, which we have considered here together. We have redemption through His blood and forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. They're not exactly the same thing. So it's not true that our confession of sins is some act of ours upon which God's act depends. Why? Because in the first place, confession of our sins is the fruit of God's powerful work within us. It belongs to His cleansing of us. It's part of His sanctifying of us. Besides that, 
even if that were possible for us to do that of our own accord, God's not obligated to us or anyone else for that matter. The text itself gives an entirely different ground. There is the text itself. We don't need logic and understanding to figure this out. The text itself tells us. What's the ground? Why is it true that if we forgive, we confess our sins, God forgives them and God cleanses us from unrighteousness? Why is that? And the answer is God Himself. Because God is faithful and just to do that. That fact alone rules out any possibility that we're forgiven because of something we have done or something in us. Even if we did confess our sins of our own accord with or without the grace of God, that doesn't satisfy the demands of God's justice. God is just. And what could your confession possibly do to atone for your sins? Our sins themselves are unfaithfulness. That fact alone shows that we have no ability in of ourselves to even confess our sins. All we do is sin and then deny it. If we are to confess our sins, something must happen to us and in us. So there is in the first ground the justice of God. What does that mean? That means God is a God who acts only in harmony with Himself, with His own supreme standard of righteousness. He is the great standard of what is righteous and what is unrighteous, and God only acts according to that standard. doesn't act according to what standard we think it ought to be. So what does that have to do with it? Well, in the first place, it explains why there must be confession of sin and why sin is sin. The answer is because God is just. God is just. He calls a spade a spade. A sin a sin. We could have a deed if we could so foolishly talk. That's 99% good and we corrupt it with 1% of sin. God says, that's sin. We may be oh so unlike the ungodly and reprobate. And yet God says to us justly and rightly, but you still are a sinner. That's what you are. Don't deny it. Don't deceive yourself into thinking you are what you are not. But there's more to it than that. It means that God is just in how He deals with us in our confession. It even says this, when we confess our sins, God must forgive them. You can be certain of that exactly because God is just. Why? Because the debt has been paid. When you bring that sin to God, God, as it were, looks at His ledger, and there it says, paid in full. So God must forgive that sin. And if, again, to speak foolishly, God might possibly forget, there at His right hand is the Son who paid for that sin, and says, Father, look again, paid in full, it says, I have paid for that sin. Brought to me. Forgive that sin. And He must cleanse us from unrighteousness. Why? Because of who we are and what we did. God forbid. 
but exactly because that's one of the benefits that Christ earned on the cross by His death. He earned not only the forgiveness of sins, but the right for us to be cleansed and delivered from the bondage of that sin. And that too, God is just. And in His justice, He must cleanse us from our sins. He doesn't simply forgive them. He delivers us from them. Number two, there is the faithfulness of God. That too explains why we can be forgiven our sins and why we are cleansed in the cross of Christ in the first place. Behind all of that stands the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God to His own Word and to His own will which He expressed in His decree of election and in all of His covenant promises through time. Those covenant promises weren't simply, I will be a God unto you and to your seed by sending Christ on the cross. Now all the rest is up to you. But those promises include everything. Everything that's necessary for me to be your God and you to be my people. It includes the promise of faith. Faith that confesses sins. It includes the cross of Christ so that those sins may be forgiven. All of that was in God's decree. All of that God promised and God is faithful to that. He's faithful also to His own Son who gave His own body and soul to the death of the cross for our sins. God is faithful to Him. God remembers His Word to Him. God remembers His promise to Him. God remembers His righteousness. God remembers that He bore His own eternal wrath for our sins so that those sins are all there marked paid in full. And God's people stand before Him as those who have completely fulfilled all of His law. And you understand, it's these facts that established why our sins must be confessed in the first place. It's not because that's a condition we must fulfill upon which God's promise depends. It rather shows the impossibility of forgiveness apart from the faithfulness and justice of God. Because of who and what God is. Deny that, you deny the justice and faithfulness of God. So, beloved brethren and sisters, hear this Word of God this morning in all of its glory and all of its truth. Believe it with all your heart, mind, and soul and strength. Not because I say so, but because God Himself says so. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Not just some sins. Not just, oh, the little sins or the occasional sins, but all of our sins. Do not fear to bring before Him your sins. Confess your sins to Him. And exactly because He is faithful and just, He forgives them and cleanses you from the unrighteousness of them. Now that's the blessedness. And that's the blessedness that we will experience this morning at His table. We will know in our own heart and soul, the truth of this passage. Know that truly our sins are forgiven, that they are forgotten, 
that there is no punishment, no retribution, there are no obligations of sin. We are freed from the guilt and the shame of them. We are freed from death and hell as the form itself said. As often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we are by a sure remembrance and pledged, assured of this my hearty love and faithfulness toward you. That's the blessedness of it. And we may expect that in the future. As if we have it now, but it's taken away later. That God has forgiven us in the judgment that we are righteous before Him, body and soul. Number two, that we are truly cleansed from all unrighteousness. Oh yes, here we are as sinners. We again have confessed our sins, but we are sanctified in Jesus Christ. You are delivered from the bondage and dominion of that sin. What's the proof of that? The very fact that we see we have sin. And we come to God to confess them. How is that possible? It's not. Not for an unregenerated individual. Not if all we are is dead in trespasses and sin. But it's proof Christ is in us. That His Spirit is alive. That God has cleansed us from unrighteousness. And it begins with forgiveness. That's the power of the sacrament. There's more. There is as the Apostle gives in the context. It is everlasting peace with God, fellowship with God, the knowledge of God, faith in God, life with God, body and soul. And that too we find in our form. That by the Holy Supper He directs our faith and trust, not to ourselves, or even to our confession of sins, but to His perfect sacrifice as to the only ground and foundation of our salvation, whereby He feeds us with His true meat and drink unto life eternal. And what? And so that we have true communion with Him and are partakers of all His blessings, of life eternal, of righteousness and glory, and besides, by this same Spirit, we are united as members of one body in true brotherly love. What's the proof that these words are true? How do you know that this Word of God is true? And the answer is because it's signified right there on that table. And you will eat and drink of it today. Amen. Let's now turn...